Here in our study this morning, I want to spend our time continuing to consider one of the most controversial sections of Scripture in the entire Bible, and I'm, of course, referring to Romans chapter 9, which has actually caused a great deal of confusion, even conflict, amongst Christians who have different interpretations of the point that Paul was making here in this chapter. But before we get into the second half of this chapter, I just want to take a moment to quickly recap the controversial verses that we studied last month. And as I pointed out in the first half of this chapter, uh, Christians have actually used this text as the biblical basis for the belief that the church has replaced Israel. And while it's true that Paul informs his audience that they aren't all Israel who are of Israel. It's also true that the everlasting promises that God made to Israel, they are still applied to the Jews according to the faith of Abraham. And as we continue to make our way through this chapter, we'll further consider the issue with replacement theology or super secessionism. And and not only that, but we're going to further consider the problems with replacement theology, uh, or or I should say that uh, not only replacement theology, but we're going to consider the problematic interpretations uh, created by those uh, who use this chapter as the biblical basis for teaching debatable doctrines like divine determinism and double predestination. And so with that, I'll remind you, we addressed this last month. I don't plan to reteach everything I said last month, because then what would be the point of a second study on this? But uh, I will remind you that we took the time last month to consider what Paul meant when he informed his audience that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. And during our study last month, we saw that, you know, as we looked at the context of the original verse that Paul was quoting, that it had more to do with nations and less to do with the individuals named Jacob and Esau. Well, here in the second half of this chapter, uh, we're going to continue to consider this perspective, and uh, and we're going to consider this in the way that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and not only that, but we're going to consider what Paul meant when he described the Lord as the potter who has power over the clay. We'll continue to consider, does this refer to individuals, or does, does this refer to nations, or, or what, is, what is Paul talking about here? And as we consider the verses before us this morning, we're going to spend our time contemplating several questions regarding the sovereignty of God, as well as the free will responsibility of humans. And as we make our way through the second half of this chapter, it's my hope and prayer that we're going to you know, gain a greater understanding of the predetermined plan and the purpose of the Lord. So with this as the focus, let's turn our attention now to Romans chapter 9. And as you're making your way to Romans 9, I just encourage you to to write down questions that come into your mind as I make my way through these verses so that we can come back after the study and engage in a time of Q&A. With that, uh, I want to focus your attention there at Romans chapter 9. It's verse 14 where Paul asks, "What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not." For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's continuing to address the Israelites who were insisting that God would be completely unjust. He would be unjust to extend the blessings of Abraham to the Gentiles and apart from the works of the law. This was one of the arguments that was going around there in the first century. And so Paul seems to be you know, addressing the, the Christians there in Rome who had been uh, faced uh, to, you know, uh, they'd been forced to face uh, this, this argument against the church. And, and so they're saying, hey, God would be unjust to do this. God would be unjust to give us the law and, and, and call us to, to accomplish it. And then when we fail, then to turn around and give the blessings of Abraham to Gentiles just by faith. And and so that's why, you know, Paul begins this chapter by addressing Abraham's second son, Isaac, to show that, hey, look, Isaac was the second son and by law didn't deserve the birthright, but by grace received it. And the same was true of Isaac's second son, Jacob. This was proof of his point that the blessings of messianic salvation are not applied through law, 
but through grace. And now Paul is reminding his readers about the promise that the Lord not only made to Abraham, but then also a promise that he made to Moses. And with this as the focus, let's take a closer look there at verse 14. Here Paul asks, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now, uh, here in these verses, we find Paul reminding his readers about this day when Moses asks to see the glory of God. You know, this is after the Exodus, and, and, and you know, Moses wants to see God. He wants to know, uh, you know more about God. And in response to this request to see the glory of God, the Lord declares this. It's Exodus thirty-three nineteen. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, as we consider this conversation between Moses and the Lord, well, we must not fail to realize that Moses was the one who was freely asking to see the glory of God. Moses is asking the Lord, can, can I see you? Can I see your glory? And the Lord responds by reminding Moses that, he has the sovereign authority then to enable him through grace to reveal his glory to Moses. And he has the sovereign authority to show compassion on whomever he chooses to show compassion. This is God's sovereign right to be gracious to whoever he wants to be gracious to and to have compassion on whomever he wants to have compassion on. He has the right to make those decisions. At the same time, it's also important for us to remember how the Lord made it possible for Moses to see his glory. It's in Exodus chapter 33. We're picking up at verse 20 where the Lord explains this to Moses in this way. He says, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. It's impossible for us to stand in the presence of a holy God as we're still in our sins. In our sins, we cannot be in the presence of God because uh, it just, you know, it, it's impossible. But then the Lord says this in verse 21 Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Very interesting. It's, it's here where we find the Lord presenting Moses with, with the problem, which is that, hey, you know, as a fallen man, you can't see my glory. But then he says, I got a, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. I've got a way that you can see or catch a glimpse of my glory. And, and he invites Moses then to stand in the cleft of the rock, and with that, I, I can't help but to remember that Jesus is the rock of salvation. That's one of the titles that we find in the Old Testament, that the Messiah is the rock of salvation. And we know that this applies to Jesus. So listen, when Moses steps into the cleft of the rock, he's stepping into a symbolic shadow of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it was there where Moses experienced the grace of God. He experienced the merciful compassion of the Lord because the Lord determined that Moses can, can you know, see his glory in the cleft of the rock. This actually presents us with a perfect picture of the way that God chooses to provide his grace and his compassion to those whose lives are hidden in Christ Jesus, the rock of our salvation. In the rock of salvation, we can catch a glimpse of God's glory here in this world. Now remember, Moses is the one who initially asked the Lord if he could see the glory of God, and the Lord was the one who then responded to Moses' request by leading him to the place where he could actually catch a glimpse of God's glory, and that was in the rock. And with that being the case, you know, we should take a moment to ask, was Moses exercising free will when he asked to see the glory of God? Or was Moses simply walking out a predetermined plan that the Lord was you know, uh, uh, leading him into uh, according to some sort of uh, maybe soft determinism or hard determinism? 
how should we understand these things? And with this, these questions in mind, you know, I want to turn our attention back to the point that Paul is driving towards here in Romans chapter 9. So look with me here. We'll pick up our study beginning, beginning at verse uh, 16. Here, Paul goes on to declare this, So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And so this was all initiated by God who chose to show mercy and compassion to Moses and, and, and this according to this predetermined plan, which is based on the rock of salvation. So God predetermined to provide Moses with an opportunity to see his glory by standing in the cleft of the rock, which is a, a picture of Jesus Christ. And so God is the one who initiates his his. Uh, mercy and his compassion and the plan and the process by which we can receive those things. And then in verse 17, uh, you know, Paul goes on to declare this, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. Here in these verses, we find Paul reminding his readers about the way in which the Lord raised up the Pharaoh of Egypt with a specific plan and purpose. And in order to grasp the connection between Moses and Pharaoh, I should remind you that this was actually prior to the days of the Exodus when uh, when the Lord sent Moses uh, to, to go and stand before the Pharaoh and tell the Pharaoh that it was time to release the Hebrews from their bondage. But rather than releasing the Hebrew slaves... The Pharaoh rejected Moses' message. That's for this reason the Lord decided to send ten plagues upon the land of Egypt. And while it's true that each of those plagues was designed to target ten of Egypt's greatest idols, well, it's also true that each plague actually provided Pharaoh with another opportunity to repent and, and to do this by releasing the Hebrew people from their captivity. And so Pharaoh had these ten opportunities to repent and obey God and, and, and walk in obedience. But sadly, Pharaoh's heart, well, it continued to grow hard uh, after each plague. That being the case, we should take a moment to ask here, did the Pharaoh have the freedom to make a decision to repent? Or was he locked into a predetermined plan for him to harden his own heart? Or was the Lord the one who was actually hardening the heart of the Pharaoh? And the answer to these questions is yes. Yes to all of them. All of this is true. As a matter of fact, the biblical record of Pharaoh's hardened heart, it actually spans 10 chapters, which we find in Exodus chapters 4 through 14. And it's in those 10 chapters of Exodus where we find Moses using three different Hebrew words for hardened. Now, as you read through those 10 chapters, you're reading in your English Bible, uh, you just see the word hardened. But in the Hebrew, there's actually three different words being used in reference to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's also interesting to note that you know, some verses help us to see that Pharaoh hardened his own heart actively. Other verses confirm that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by his own decisions. And then the rest of the verses actually assure us that God both passively and actively hardened Pharaoh's heart just based on uh, the, the tenses of the verbs. So there's times when God passively hardens Pharaoh's heart by confirming or strengthening Pharaoh's decision. And then towards the end, towards the, 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 the last few of the plagues, uh, God is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart based on, uh, number one, his foreknowledge, and number two, uh, based on Pharaoh's own free will decisions. As we synthesize all of the verses on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart together, what we discover is this, that Pharaoh actively hardened his own heart against the Lord according to the foreknowledge of God. And in response, the Lord passively strengthens Pharaoh's decision to harden his own heart. And then by the end of the 10 plagues, the Lord was actively hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now with all this in mind, I want to take another look at the point that Paul is making there in verse 18, because there he declares this, therefore, He has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Now from this, we can say with all certainty that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We know that. And yet we must not forget that the Lord didn't actively harden Pharaoh's heart until 
after Pharaoh actively hardened his own heart against the will of the Lord. In similar fashion, we also know that the religious rulers who called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, well, they were also guilty of hardening their own hearts against the Lord. I want to consider the way that Stephen puts it in Acts chapter 7. It's beginning at verse 51. Here Stephen accuses the religious leaders there in the first century by declaring, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now, when Stephen calls those religious leaders there in Israel, when he calls them stiff-necked, he's actually using a Greek word which shares the same root as the word that Paul uses here in Romans 9, verse 18, where he tells us that God hardens whomever he wills. Here in this, in this text, in Acts 7, Stephen actually uses a word that is uh, hardened the neck. Uh, you know, it speaks of, of these Jews as hardening their necks against the Lord. We should also notice that Stephen accused them of resisting the Holy Spirit, just as their fathers had done before them. That word resist, it's actually translated from a Greek word which is used of those who strive against or oppose. So he's saying, hey, you're, you've stiffened your neck, you've hardened your hearts, in other words, and you have resisted the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, and this occurs after the ascension of Jesus Christ. But we know that the Holy Spirit was also playing this active role there in Israel during these days, and yet they resisted the Holy Spirit. They resisted the Holy Spirit who spoke through the prophets as well, just as their fathers and forefathers had done before them. And as we consider the tense of the verb resist, we can see that they were actively opposing the Holy Spirit. This was an active decision on their part to oppose or resist or to strive against the Holy Spirit. Now, as we consider the way that the religious rulers there in Israel were rejecting our Redeemer, we should take some time to ask, did the Lord harden their hearts so that they would crucify Christ? Like, was the Lord the one that was hardening their hearts and, and causing their necks to be stiffened, you know, so that they would crucify Christ? Or did the Lord harden the hearts of these leaders after they resisted the Holy Spirit? Were they exercising free will when they crucified Christ? Or were they forced to reject Jesus Christ after the Lord hardened their hearts? Well, with these questions in mind, we should take a moment to consider the theological theory of compatibilism. And just to be clear, compatibilism is uh, also known as soft determinism, and it's a theological term that attempts to reconcile uh, the sovereignty of God with the free will of humans. In an attempt to answer the questions concerning the hardening of people's hearts, like Pharaoh or the religious rulers there in Israel, those who embrace compatibilism will insist that people have the freedom to choose what they want. And so they, they you know, claim to embrace free will to the extent that people are able to choose whatever they desire. Therefore, the unrepentant unbeliever is said to have free will in, in the limited you know, scope of they can do and choose what they desire to do uh, all the while in the context of knowing that the unregenerate, unrepentant, unbeliever will only desire what is wrong and evil and, and sinful. Well, if that's the case, then, then we, uh, you know, uh, we should take a moment to, uh, to, to consider here, why would the Lord feel the need to harden the heart of someone who's only going to harden their own hearts? Why would the Lord step in and actively harden Pharaoh's heart if his only path of free will is that he's going to harden his own heart. In other words, if this form of soft determinism is true and there is a, a, a limited scope of free will where the unbeliever can freely choose to continue living in unbelief, well, so, so how is that free will then? 
And why does the Lord determine to further harden the hearts of those who are already determined to harden their own hearts according to their own free will? And with all this in mind, listen, we should also consider this. If the unbeliever is only able to harden their own hearts against the Lord, then why do those who embrace compatibilism consider this to be a free will decision? True that they are freely making the decision, but I'm of the opinion that free will isn't just the voluntary decision to do what you already desire to do, but rather free will also includes the ability and the capacity to choose the contrary. Do do unbelievers actually have the ability to choose what is contrary to their natural desires? Because if not, then how, how do we call that free will? Listen, I believe that free will is not only the ability to do what we desire to do, but also to have the capacity to choose the opposite of what we want to do. I mean, case in point, you know, just consider Adam and Eve. You know, they were perfect in the garden and yet chose contrary to their perfect will. Was that free will or was that God forcing them to make that decision? Listen, as we consider these questions, you know, I, I personally be- believe that compatibilism or soft determinism doesn't really strike the balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because by God's decision, we are born under the curse and, and therefore in, in bondage to our sinful nature or our fallen flesh, and then can only do what God has determined for us to do, which is to make decisions that are completely in line with our fallen desires. And so, why are we responsible for that? And, and, and to more fully grasp the issue that I'm raising here, I want to consider the way that Paul compares the Lord to a potter who has sovereign power over the clay that he's forming, so that we can continue to consider, you know, is, is God you know, using hard determinism to form us into these beings who are choosing to do sinful things? Or, or is there some other way to understand this, this text about the potter and the clay? And, and with this in mind, let's turn our attention back to, to the point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 9. Look with me there beginning at verse 19. Here he declares, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. That, that's what I'm asking. You know, why, why does God, if, if it's true that God has hard determined or even soft determined me to only do what I desire to do, then why does he find fault with me? And, and to further, uh, you know, bring up this issue here, let's consider how uh, Paul goes on to say here in verse 20, Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the, notice, Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Again, we're talking about nations here. We're talking about groups of people, not individuals like Jacob and Esau. And so with that, let's, let's consider how you know, Paul compares the Lord to this potter who has complete power over the clay. And if we're talking about the individual election of specific persons prior to the creation of the world... Well, then this would seem to suggest here that that God is engaged in an act of hard determinism as he forms each person according to his predetermined plan, uh, whether they are then vessels of honor or vessels for dishonor. Well, as we consider the way that the potter here is able to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor, it certainly seems here that Paul is describing God as a a being who determines whether someone is good or evil according to his predetermined plan. But is that the way we should understand this passage? Is that the proper interpretation of this paragraph? If so, then listen, the compatibilist who is rejecting hard determinism or double predestination, they're failing to fully embrace the point that they think Paul was trying to make here. 
the, the, the compatibilist who comes to this text and believes that you know, Paul is talking about the individual election or rejection of uh, specific individuals, uh, but the, if, if they reject the hard determinism of double predestination, then they're failing to really fully ing- uh, grasp and, 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 and embrace what Paul seems to be saying. Think about it. If the Lord is like a potter who is actively making one person for honor and another for dishonor, well, then it only stands to reason that the Lord is the one who creates some people for heaven while, while simultaneously creating other people for hell. If, this, if these verses are about you know, the, the choice that God makes of specific individuals for election or reprobation, well, then double predestination is clearly what Paul is teaching. Thankfully, that's not what he's teaching. <laughs> But how do I escape the, the, the obvious you know, uh, interpretation uh, that so many uh, in, in, the, in the camp of Calvinists and hyper-Calvinists, uh, you know, how do we escape their interpretive uh, uh, take on this uh, text here? Well, with that, I, I want to con- uh, consider the context of the illustration that Paul's actually referring to here. Much like we went back and looked at the context of Jacob and Esau and saw that you know, uh, this was not about individuals, but rather about nations. Uh, well, we find a similar uh, contextual understanding of the potter and clay reference from uh, the book of Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, it's in Jeremiah uh, where we find the Lord telling the prophet to go to the potter's house. And in Jeremiah 18, that's where the prophet declares this, beginning at verse 3. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making... Uh, something at the wheel, and the vessel that he made was uh, of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? He's talking to the nation. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord. Look, he says, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns uh, from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring on it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it and plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my, my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said would benefit it. Christian, listen, this passage about the potter and the clay has nothing to do with the predetermined picking and choosing of specific individuals. This isn't specific election of individuals. No, instead, the Lord used the potter as a parabolic illustration of the way that he prepares nations for his perfect purposes, which includes the exaltation of the nations that obey him and the destruction of those who disobey him. With all this in mind, it's important to remember uh, that the Lord presented this prophecy 20 years, 20 years before he raised up the Babylonians to punish the sinful people there in the land of Judea. He gave them chance after chance after chance to repent and get back uh, on, on his uh, perfect plan, uh, but they, they refused. And so 20 years before he raised up the Gentile nation of, uh, of Babylonia, you know, 20 years before, he warns them and, and says, hey, consider the potter. And, and just as the potter found this willful clay and decided to recreate something else, so too the, the Lord can take a nation that is marred in his own hands by their own decisions, the, the willful clay will be punished and prepared for destruction according to the plan of God. And, and listen, as we consider how this prophecy in Jeremiah was presented 20 years before he raised up the Babylonians to come in and destroy the temple and raise Jerusalem to the ground, well, it's in similar fashion that Paul wrote the book of Romans here that we're reading today. This book was written 15 years before the Lord raised up the Roman Empire and then punished the sinful people there in the land of Judah. Clearly, I mean, there's context to this that has to be considered. 
And much like the Babylonians that the Lord raised up to destroy Jerusalem and the temple, well, the Romans came in and, and according to God's, God's plan here, you know, the Romans destroyed the second temple and raised Jerusalem to the ground. As we consider the context surrounding the illustration of the potter and the clay from its original context, well, there's no doubt in my mind that the Holy Spirit was using Paul here to help his kinsmen to realize that the Lord will patiently endure with the vessels of wrath who are being prepared for the destruction that they're going to experience if they don't repent. And he's able to raise up the vessels that he plans to use to exact that punishment. And from this, we can see how the Lord sovereignly works within the nations of this world as he purposefully prepares to punish the nations who use their free will in a sinful way. And listen, this not only includes the times when the Lord used Israel to go punish the Gentile nations, because remember, the the Lord brought Israel into the land of Canaan. Why? Well, because the people refused to repent of their wicked ways. And so the Lord used Israel as a threshing sledge to come in and wipe out those people. And the same, and in the same way, the Lord raised up the Babylonians to punish Israel. The Lord raised up the Assyrians to punish Israel. The Lord raised up the Romans to punish Israel, all according to his predetermined plan. As we consider all of this, we have to understand that the Lord will use the nations of this world as he sees fit. And those who would say, well, that's not fair. How, how can God use unrepentant Gentile nations like the Romans or the Babylonians to punish his chosen people, Israel? And God says, you're just a clay. Who are you to ask why God would use Babylonians and Romans to punish the chosen people of God when he's the sovereign one uh, over, over all the nations of the earth? He can, he can do as he chooses. At the same time, we have to understand how the Lord you know, continues to raise up the Gentiles here in uh, this church age, uh, not only you know, to exact punishment at times, but also the Lord is raising up uh, Gentiles to become servants who are spreading the light of the truth. And remember, Israel was the one that was supposed to bring the light of the world, uh, or the, the light of the Lord into the world. And, and of course, you know, ultimately through the birth of the Messiah. But now here in the church age, the the Lord has flipped the script and, and, and now he's using Gentiles by and large to bring the light of the Lord into this world. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 9. Look with me there beginning at verse 25. Here he declares, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Here in these verses, we find Paul now quoting from two different prophecies that are found in the book of Hosea. And again, we're not talking about individual Gentiles, you know, but, but rather we're talking about just the, the general concept of God raising up Gentiles from all the nations to become the sons of God. And both of these prophecies that, uh, that, that Paul is quoting from Hosea are positive proof that the Gentiles were not vessels of wrath just by nature of their earthly lineage because this is what the children of Israel there in the first century believed. Many, if not most, of the Jews there in the first century uh, had come to the conclusion that God created the Gentiles merely to fuel the fires of Hades. Well, this wasn't the conclusion that they were supposed to come to. Remember, the, the children of Israel were called to be a light to the Gentile nations so that the Gentiles might repent and come to the Messiah. But instead, they, they came to the conclusion that, well, God's predetermined them to go to hell. God's predetermined them you know, to be vessels of dishonor. And Paul is saying to, to that argument here, he's saying, wait, wait, what, but what did Hosea say? What did the Lord reveal through the prophet Hosea except that there's coming a day when those who are not his people will be called sons of the living God? This is the predetermined plan of God to to provide Gentiles with the opportunity to become the adopted children of God. And so he's addressing those Israelites who are saying, nope, the Gentiles can't be a part of messianic blessings. 
Those, those Israelites were struggling to, to believe in a gospel message by which Gentiles could be called the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul took this time to remind them of the prophecy that presented this very promise in the, you know, through the prophet Hosea. And, and, and I like the way that Paul explains it later in Galatians chapter 3. It's there in verses 26 through 29 where he declares this. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Yeah, don't, don't, don't get it twisted, you know, because there are those, even in the church today, who are saying, oh, we're all sons and, and we're, we're all the children of God by nature of our natural birth. No, we have to be born again to be the adopted children of God. So he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, that's not talking about water baptism. That's talking about the spiritual baptism by which we are submerged into the mystical body of Christ and sealed there by the Holy Spirit. And, and those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, well, Paul says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, does that mean there are no Jews or Greeks? Well, of course not. But rather, the, the wall of separation between the Jew and the Greek is gone now. And so in Christ, it doesn't even matter whether you were born to a Jewish lineage or a Greek lineage. And and to make my case, he goes on to say, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. Now, how can Paul say that and then turn around and tell women that they can't uh, teach from the pulpit? If there's neither male nor female, then how would we know if it was a woman teaching from the pulpit or a man? Well, clearly he's not saying there's neither male nor, nor female in a literal sense, but rather... In, in the sense that it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, the Lord wants to save both, right? The, the, the Lord wants to save both genders. And, and at the same time, he's also letting us know that there, are no, that there aren't more than two. Paul was all about the gender binary, and so should we be. He says, you are all one in Christ. In other words, all the, all the physical and, and, you know, all of the, you know, natural d- divisions and distinctions that would set us apart in the natural world, Paul is saying no longer matters in Christ. Because in Christ, we are the adopted children of God. And he says in verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Love that. We are Abraham's seed and we don't even have to go to a Messianic Jewish church to be, become Abraham's seed. How about that? Regardless of our bloodline, no matter our gender, regardless of our race, no matter our class, we are the adopted children of God by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And what this also means is that the Israelites who reject Jesus, well, they also end up missing out on the blessings of their natural election. There's a natural or national election that is applied to Israel, and they miss out on the benefits of that by rejecting Jesus Christ. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 9. Look with me there beginning at verse 27. Paul here declares, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. So now we've gone from the Gentiles who can become the adopted children of God, and now again we're talking about Israel. Again, we're talking about nations here. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's now quoting two prophecies from the prophet Isaiah, and according to these prophecies, the Lord was preparing to punish all of the unrepentant Israelites, and yes, despite the fact that they were the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaiah also informs us, though, that only a remnant would be saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And I, and I like the way uh, that, that, that Paul elaborates on this in Romans chapter 11, just to show you that my interpretation of what Isaiah is saying lines up with New Testament truth here. It's in Romans 11, verse 1. That's where Paul goes on to say this, and, and, and really he's carrying forth you know, the, what he's introducing here in Romans 9. 
And he says in verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But was, what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Christian, listen, the Lord has not cast away his people. Who are his people? Well, Paul says there in Romans 11, the, the, the Israelites who are of the seed of Abraham, the, those are his people, his elect nation. And, and so listen, those who use Romans chapter 9 to insist that the church has somehow replaced Israel, well, they're failing to realize that the Lord isn't done with his elect nation. Now, this is not to suggest that the Jews can be saved through you know, some sort of commitment to the old covenant. There are those um, who teach dual covenantism, uh, which is to say that you know, the church is saved by faith in the new covenant, and the Jews are saved by their commitment to the old covenant. Well, that's just flat-out heresy. The church, you know, uh, the, the, the gospel of grace is for the church, and Paul says for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile, right? So the gospel of grace is how everyone is saved, and, and by faith in Jesus Christ, now in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile in the sense that, you know, we're all the elect in Christ because he's the elect one. And by faith in Jesus Christ, his election then applies to us through federal headship. And yet, this, we have to understand that God's not done with the nation of Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. No, instead, the Gentiles have simply been grafted in to the natural olive tree by faith in Jesus Christ. And I like the way that Paul explains it here in Romans chapter 11. There he goes on to declare this. He says, some of the branches, and he's speaking of Israel, some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, speaking of the Gentiles, you being a wild olive tree were grafted in, not into them, some people think that we're grafted into Israel. No, we're not. Paul says we are grafted in among them and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. The wild olive tree of the Gentile world those who believe in Jesus Christ have been grafted in to the root. And who's the root? Jesus Christ. We're not grafted in among the Israelites, or we're not grafted into the Israelites. We're grafted in among them, uh, both by faith in Jesus Christ. And seeing how the Lord is the root, then both Jew and Gentile alike are being supported by our Savior. And while it's true that the Lord Jesus has broken down that middle wall of separation that once separated Jews and Gentiles, well, it's also true that the Lord has a special plan for the nation of Israel, which is going to be fulfilled after the rapture of the church during the time that we refer to as the 70th week of Daniel. And it's sad that we just don't have time to really drill down into that topic here today. Maybe I'll do another study just on that alone. But for now, I just want to consider how Paul wraps up Romans chapter 9. We looked at these verses last month, but I want to, again, just consider what Paul is saying here as he wraps up this incredibly controversial uh, chapter here. And, and, and with that, I want to begin reading at verse 30. He asks, what shall we say then? That Gentiles, again, we're not talking about individuals. We're talking about the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have attained a righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel... The nation of Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, 
Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Paul. He's helping his audience to understand that those who pursue their own righteousness through the works of the law, well, they're going to fail to attain the righteousness that they're working for. Conversely, those who will simply place their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, well, they receive the free gift of Christ's righteousness, which is imputed into the spiritual account of those who trust in him. Now, in order to sum up this complex and controversial chapter, Paul here helps the Christians there in Rome to realize that the Israelites who were insisting that they were saved simply because of their national or natural lineage, well, they were clearly confused. And I have no doubt that there were Jews walking around at that period of time trying to you know, tell the Christians there in the Gentile world that, you know, that they can't you know, attain to Messianic blessings because that belongs to the Jews only and not to the Gentiles. And Paul's coming along and saying, not, not so. We can go all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and see that that wasn't the case at all. Listen, according to Paul, you can be a child of Abraham and still miss out on the promise of God, just like Ishmael. And you can be a child of Isaac and still reject your birthright, just like Esau. And you can be a descendant of Israel and yet still miss out on the promised Messiah, just like those there in the first century who called for his crucifixion. Remember the, the, the Jews there in the first century, most of them stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ Jesus, who's the cornerstone of our salvation. And still today, those who are rejecting Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, well, they, you know, they're, they're rejecting God's plan for how people are saved. So Paul assures us here that whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Those who reject him will. But when Paul says, whoever believes in Jesus, there in the final section of, uh, in the final verse of this chapter, that word whoever, in the Greek, listen, it literally means whoever. Yeah, whoever. And, and, and I get it, you know, the, the, the original Greek word could mean some of every type of nation. That, that is valid. It could mean that. But does it? Let's consider how the same word is used in John chapter 3. It's there where the Lord Jesus declares, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whoever who? The world. That's the context. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whoever in the world believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Speaks of potentiality. Jesus then says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because God predetermined them to go to hell. Oh, wait, no, that's not what it says at all. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why are unbelievers condemned? Because they won't believe. Because they choose not to believe. And in this, we see how God the Father exercised his sovereign will by predetermining before the foundations of the earth to send us a savior, the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth so that we humans could freely choose either to accept or reject our redeemer. And according to Jesus, those who believe in him, they're going to be saved. While those who reject him are condemned already. And the reason why is because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And from this, we can see that there's a simple balance between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, God has done everything necessary to provide us with the free gift of grace. God has put in motion everything necessary for his plan of salvation. And while it's true that the Father sent his only begotten Son to come 
and die for the sins of the world. He also sent the Holy Spirit to come and convict the hearts of every unbeliever of their sin and of their lack of righteousness and of the judgment to come. And in this way, he actually enables every sinner. He draws every sinner to repent and trust in Jesus Christ so that the world through him might be saved, all the while giving them, each person, the freedom of choice to accept or reject Jesus Christ. With that, listen, the Lord has given us free will, and, and you know, those who insist that, well, this is then in competition with God's sovereignty, I, I would say they have a very small, uh, tiny view of God's sovereignty. Listen, God is so completely sovereign that he can actually give us free will and not allow that to impact his final and, uh, and, and, and perfect purposes. So with that, you know, knowing that we've been given free will, knowing that we have the ability to walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh, that is still something that Christians can do today. Today, Christian, you can walk in the power of the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, and you can walk in the, in, in, in the fallen nature of your fallen flesh and, and sin, well, with that, the best thing that we can all do is just hand our free will back over to God. Like, like, like a drunk with the, their car keys, the best thing you can do is just hand them keys over. Don't get in that car and drive. Hand those keys over to someone who's more responsible. Yeah, we ought to take our free will and just say, here, God, I, I, I suck at this. I, I'm no good with my free will. I wish that God forced me to do everything according to his will because, you know, I would struggle a lot less <laughs> in this life. But with that being the case, you know, the best thing that we can do is to simply submit our will to the will of God. And, and I like the way that Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 16. There he declares, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is asking us to make a decision to deny ourselves, to take up the cross, and to follow him. So rather than using our free will to live any way uh, that we want to live, and, and which is typically going to be in, in, in a way that is contrary to the will of God, we should instead take up the cross and crucify our flesh every day so that we can live our life according to the perfect will of God. Let's pray.